Revelation chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. Tried to get through verse 4 last week, but didn't make it. Let's read verses 4 through 7. Nevertheless, I have this against you. This is the church of Ephesus, the very first church of the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I love that phrase, the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we go through this four verses here that you would just open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth that you have for us here today. Lord, we thank you that you promised that you would send the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us, to guide us into all truth. Bless this study now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the nevertheless was preceded in the first three verses by all the commendations that Jesus had lavished upon the church at Ephesus. They were commended for many good things. But there's a nevertheless here. I have this against you. In spite of all their hard work, perseverance, steadfastness, in sound doctrine, which is important, but Jesus had something against them. That's never a good thing to hear. But again, the Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he also what? Chastens. And that's what any good loving parent would do. And he is our heavenly father. We know what happens when uh, someone receives nothing but praise, adoration, never any discipline, and, and never any correction. You just become a spoiled brat, right? That's not real love. Dr. James Dobson coined the phrase many years ago, tough love, love must be tough. There are times when tough love is required, and that's what Christ is applying here to the church in Ephesus. Then he tells us what it is that he has against this church. You have left or forsaken your first love. Now what's interesting about this is, more than 30 years before, this church had been commended by the Apostle Paul for its love. Ephesians 1:15 and 16. Therefore, Paul writes, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so, in the early days of the church in Ephesus, which, by the way, Paul spent three years ministering there. He spent more time in that church than any other. One of the hallmarks or trademarks of the church in Ephesus is that they were a church of love, agape. I happen to believe that's what this church is like. Very loving church. And we hear people say that all the time. But this letter of Revelation was written during the time of Domitian, as I mentioned before, the emperor, Roman emperor Domitian. And over 30 years had passed since Paul had written his letter to the Ephesians. 
Many of the believers in Ephesus were second-generation Christians. They'd grown up in the church and had learned what to do, but had forgotten why. And I kind of witnessed this same phenomenon, uh, being part of the Jesus movement back in the early 70s, really for the whole decade of the 70s, I would say. There was a whole new generation of believers that, that came up, if you will. We know that there was just an incredible revival that swept beginning on the West Coast, the United States, all the way across the U.S., over into Europe, all over the world. That was a time of massive numbers of people coming to Christ and new types of churches emerging, new worship. It was amazing. But then, as those young, hippie, Jesus people, you know, got older, began to settle down, raise families, have jobs, and so forth, and they began to have children, and those children began to grow up in the church, because many of the people who came to Christ in the Jesus movement did not have church backgrounds. Or if they did, it was a very non-relational religious experience, no real relationship with God. But then as they began to raise their children in the church, that was like this generation here in Ephesus. They grew up in the church. They learned all about God, but they had not really come into their own personal experience with Him. They knew what to do, but they had forgotten why they were supposed to do it. And so sadly, we've seen, and as I've talked to many of my pastor friends and other Christian friends around the country, we've seen a tremendous departure from the church, from the faith of young people who've grown up in the church. And um, our friend back at Noah's Ark and the Creation Museum, Ken Ham, has written a couple books about that. One about what happens to kids in, when they're in high school, and another as they then go on into college and the tremendous departure from the faith that's taking place. It's a sad thing, but it's another sign of the last days. And even Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Indicating that there won't be much. And although these things sound somewhat negative, like I said, in order for God's plan to be carried out and fulfilled, these things have to happen. The important thing is to make sure that we endure, that we persevere, and that we do all we can to encourage those around us to do the same. I don't know if I had mentioned this, I sent an email to some folks in the, in the leadership. I'd seen a couple weeks ago this article about um, this young man who was part of a popular Christian music group. What was it called? Something Hawk. Hawk Nelson. Renounced his faith. And we've seen others in recent times do the same. Some well-known worship leaders and different ones have all of a sudden just come out and said, you know what, I don't believe anymore. The Bible says, he who endures to the end will be saved. That's why the Bible refers to it as a walk. Walking with the Lord. Staying on pace with Him. Now Paul also refers to it like a race. But it's more like a marathon. You have to pace yourself. Our faith in Christ, our walk with God here on earth is not a sprint. And I've seen people, some people, trying to do the sprint. 
You know, not the phone service, but the, uh, <laughs> but they, they, they do what I call hitting the ground running. Zoom, you know. But it's like the tortoise and the hare, right? You get going too fast, too quick, and you burn out. We have to pace ourselves. It's like a marathon. And the important thing is to make it to the finish line. So this church of Ephesus, I think what I would, the way I would describe it, they've, they've gone from being a Mary church to being a Martha church. And I want to read from Luke 10 so we know what we're talking about here. Luke 10, 39. She had a sister called Mary, she being Martha, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. It's a great danger for people in the church. And I've seen it happen. And it's probably happening right now in this church, to be honest, that some people get so caught up in serving that they stop sitting at the feet of Jesus. Or they use it as a way of kind of hiding, avoiding relationship with God and with others. Martha was distracted on the surface it looked like she was an awesome woman, which I'm sure she was. But she was distracted with much serving, and she approached him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Oh, not, not only is she distracted, she's offended. Because while Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, she's preparing meals and doing all these things, you know, and it looks like, what an awesome servant of God. And she's offended. She's offended by her sister, and sounds to me like she's a little bit offended with Jesus, too. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Wow. She's kind of ordering Jesus around. <laughs> and there are Christians that do that. I'm not going to go there, but I've seen believers do that, where they think they have a right to order God around. I can't wait till they see him face to face. And find out how the cow eats the cabbage. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. More important to sit at the feet of Jesus than to look busy for Jesus. When we first come to Christ and we become part of his bride, we are called, that's one of the names for the church, the bride of Christ. It's just like on the earthly level, falling in love, getting married, going on a honeymoon. That's what it's like for new believers oftentimes. It's just wonderful, exhilarating to have that burden of sin lifted off of you. How many of you remember what that feels like? When all of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you're no longer carrying that weight because you've now placed it upon Jesus, the only one who can handle it. But after a while, just like in a human relationship, a human marriage, the excitement, the warm, fuzzy feelings can begin to fade unless 
We make an ongoing effort to keep the fire burning. Maybe we should do that song again next week. Um, light the fire. Light the fire again. Keep the fire burning. How do you do that? In a marriage relationship, time together, conversation, sharing our hearts, our hopes, our dreams, expressing our love for one another. And we can do the same thing in our relationship with God. But if we don't do that, we will drift apart and our love will grow cold. And that's been proven by the, the high divorce rate, not only in the secular world, but in the church. One of the saddest things that I've witnessed over the last many years is that there's almost no difference in the divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians. It's a sad thing. But a lot of it has to do with neglect. Leaving, losing, forsaking your first love. It might seem like an impossible task, but it's not. It is possible to rekindle, whether it's your marriage or your relationship with God. It is possible. And of course, it's better to pursue that sooner rather than later. So it's the same way with God. If we replace sitting at His feet with working for Him, we can do both. I remember that people used to say, oh, man, that guy is so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. And you hear about these little cults and sects that um, they want to go up on a mountaintop and wait for the rapture, you know. We are called to occupy till He comes. We have a calling here on earth. We have responsibilities. But the first thing should be sitting at Jesus' feet. And if we replace that with working for Him, eventually our works will become dead works. They will look good to those around us, but to God they're meaningless and perhaps even offensive. I'm reminded of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move, remove mountains, but have not love, agape, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, social justice, social efforts, ministries, feeding the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And that cultivation, love is the fruit of the Spirit, we're told in Galatians chapter 5. Fruit grows, right? Doesn't just magically appear overnight. Pow! It's a growth process. And it requires that you plant the tree or the other uh, vine or whatever it might be into the ground. Then you begin to water it, nourish it. And over a period of time, that sustenance works its way up into the tree or the plant. And the healthy tree or plant then begins to gradually produce fruit. And that's how it is for us as believers. Gifts of the Spirit are given by God, but the fruit is something that grows as we sit at Jesus' feet, as we walk with God, as we nurture that fruit. We feed our spirits with the Word of God. We water them with the Holy Spirit. 
and gradually that fruit begins to appear in our lives. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works, the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. So in spite of all the commendations that Jesus had lavished upon the Ephesian church, from Jesus' perspective, because they had forsaken or left their first love, they were in a, a fallen state. Still doing the works, still being the Martha group of believers, but left the merry heart behind. According to God, according to the writers of the New Testament, agape love, unconditional love, love that loves without anything, expecting anything in return, that's the love that Jesus displayed for us on the cross of Calvary. That is the pinnacle of the Christian experience. That doesn't mean we forsake the other things, but those other things should be built upon the foundation of love. To have been there, to be, have been at that place like the Ephesian church was, known for their love for one another and for God. But now, to have left that is to be in a fallen condition. To have been there and to have left it is to fall a great fall. 1 Peter 4.8, Peter writes, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, he does not mean what we celebrated here this morning, taking communion, the forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But what Peter is talking about there, even as believers, because we are still in a fallen state, we have a dual nature. In Christ, we are new creatures. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But there's still... The old man, the old woman, the flesh that we battle on a daily basis, right? If we could walk in absolute perfection, then Christ would have never had to die on the cross for our sins. The moments where we do look like Jesus are the result of the Spirit of God working in us. But we have that dual nature. Paul talked about it. He said, that which I would do, I do not, and that which I would not do, I do. Any of you relate to that? The covering over the multitude of sins. So what Peter's talking about is, in a group of believers, in a marriage, wherever there's relationship, and offense is taken by every little mistake we make. There's no agape there. When we're able to overlook one another's imperfections, our faults, our failures. Maybe we said something the wrong way. And a lot of it has to do with perception, right? And boy, that, I, I've always said the number one bane of humanity is communication. Because oftentimes when we hear someone say something, it goes through the, the filters that we've acquired in our own lives. And so someone could say, and boy, that's where... Emails and texting really create problems. There's no body language. 
There's no facial contact, right? There's no context. And I've seen many people have broken relationships over texts and emails and stuff like that. I would much rather just talk to someone. Preferably face to face, but if not on the telephone, somehow there's a much greater chance that you won't be misunderstood. But as believers, the scriptures say we're not to be easily offended. And yet oftentimes, we see that happens. And it usually happens in a church, a group of believers, a group of people that have forsaken their first love. They've left the Mary relationship, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and moved into the Martha syndrome, where their faith is all about works. Now, we know we can't earn our salvation through good works, but do we sometimes forget that? I think we do. We fall into legalism, and everything is about performance. Love, above all things, have fervent, intense, passionate love for one another. That definitely takes the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Because we don't always feel that way about each other, do we? Just like in a marriage. You don't always feel passionate and fiery about your spouse. And that's where commitment comes in. Love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. Agape love. That's the commitment that Jesus displayed when he died on the cross for our sins, right? Love cover will cover a multitude of sins. You won't have fighting, bickering, gossiping, backbiting, division in a church that's walking in love, agape love. Isaiah 51.1 Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Now this is in the context of Jesus telling the Ephesians, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to the rock and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. The only reason that we can have a first love to return to is because the one who is love has made us a chip off the old block. So I suppose we could say that when a person or a group of people, a church, has left their first love, it's because they've also, in a sense, left Jesus. We don't come to church here to just talk about him we come here to meet with him, right? We want to have relationship with him, even in the context of this gathering, as we worship him together, as we study his word. This is not just a weekly memorial service because Jesus ain't dead. He's alive. If we had a dead spiritual leader then our services would just be a weekly memorial service. But no, he's alive. So he's here with us. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. After going through that litany 
At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I can do this and this and that and the other thing, but I have not love, it's meaningless, it profits me nothing. He says, now abide, faith, hope, love, these three, three important pillars of our faith in Christ, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Just like Peter said, above all, things have fervent love for one another. The greatest of these is love. And the only way that we can possess that love and walk in that love is to be like Mary and spend time sitting at the feet of Jesus together and individually. So he says to them, what's the answer to this problem? Repent. Which, as we know, means to turn and go the other way. They had gotten headed off in the wrong direction. So it's possible, even as believers, to get headed off in the wrong directions. Surely and certainly, apart from Christ, when we were not believers, we were going in the wrong direction. So Jesus says, repent. Turn and go the other way. Turn from following after your own desires and follow me. That's what happens when you become a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent. You must turn. You can't follow Jesus and the world. They're headed in opposite directions. But now he tells the Ephesian church, a group of people who'd already been born again, who'd already repented of their sins, but now you need to repent because you're headed in the wrong direction. You've forsaken your first love. Turn and go the other way. Turn from your Martha mentality and turn back to an intimate relationship with God and do the first works. So Jesus isn't telling them, don't do any more good works. He's saying, get your heart right so that your works will be empowered by my love. Do the right things for the right reasons. And often, unfortunately, when we fall into that Martha category, we can be doing the right things, but we're doing them for the wrong reasons. And therefore, that neutralizes and nullifies the fruitfulness, the meaningfulness of what we're doing. Remember what Jesus said to Martha? Mary has chosen that good part. Now, we can be sure Mary didn't spend the rest of her life sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus got up, left the house, went on to other places. Mary and Martha got up, went back to their regular daily tasks. But the point is, Mary understood the importance of sitting at the feet of Jesus first and then having established and developed that intimate relationship with Christ when she went forth to serve him, it would be in the spirit of love. We can tell that Martha was in the wrong place because she was offended. Rather than joyfully serving Jesus, the disciples, and even her own sister and brother Lazarus, she was offended that she was having to do everything herself. When you're doing the right things for the right reasons, you don't care if anybody else is doing it or not. And you're not doing it to impress anybody. You're doing it because you love God. And you don't need human accolades for it. Yeah, that's, boy, that's such a difficult thing in the church. 
not this church, I'm, I'm just saying the church in general. And I've seen it through the years that people, sadly, some people who just really work hard and serve and, and do so much for the church, but then they get burned out, they get offended, it's, and then it all, it's all for naught. That's no way to live. Repent and do the first works. Those works that were rooted and grounded in agape love rather than works for works sake, works that were birthed out of an intimate relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Jesus says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember the lampstands represented those seven churches there in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Jesus told us that we were the light of the world. Each of these lampstands represented one of those churches. And the only light that we have to give this world is the light that God gives us, right? I like that analogy I heard many years ago that uh, Jesus is the sun and we're the moon. The moon doesn't have any light source within itself, does it? The moon reflects the light from the sun. And that's how we are. So the more we allow the sun to shine in our lives, the more we're going to reflect that light. Just like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, reflecting the light. He was in the presence of God. And it illuminated him. He began to glow. Ever had a watch that's got one of those dials that you hold it up to the light and then you get in the dark and it, it glows? But it doesn't last very long, does it? And then you've got to get some more light, right? That's how we are with God. We, he gives us the light. The only light we have is that which we receive from Him. And if we are unfaithful, if we have forsaken our first love, then He will remove His hand of blessing Jesus says, I will come quickly to remove your lampstand from its place. And that's happened sadly many, many times over the last 2,000 years where churches that have departed from their first love and then gradually faded into oblivion. Not only just churches, but denominations. Most of the mainline denominations that were birthed out of great revival are now dead. They don't teach or preach the true gospel anymore. There are pulpits filled with so-called pastors who don't believe in the virgin birth, who don't believe in the divinity of Christ, who don't believe in the resurrection. And it goes on and on and on. And that's what happens when a church departs from its first love. Jesus says this is what will happen unless, so it's not hopeless, he's not pronouncing them dead and buried, unless you repent. So it is a choice that the Ephesian church had to make. People often get offended at God because he didn't stop something from happening or he allowed something to happen or, you know, why did you let me do that, Lord? You should have stopped me. Really? Are you a robot? No, God didn't create robots. Are you a puppet? No. 
He didn't. He hates puppets. He created us in His image. That means we have a free will. That's amazing. God has created us with the ability to choose. Unfortunately, in our fallen state, we often make the wrong choices. And I won't even begin to go down that road. Of all the bad choices we've all made in our lives, unless you repent, it's a choice. That initial repentance that leads to salvation. It's your choice. God loves you. He proved it 2,000 years ago. What else does he have to do to prove to you that he loves you? He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus laid down his life. The ball's in your court. What must you do to be saved? You must repent. You must confess your sins to God. Yield your life over to Him. Allow His Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you that you might be born again. And in this case, the Ephesian church, they'd already done that. But they had lost their way. And so Jesus says, I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your lampstand unless... You repent. The ball's in your court once again. It's a choice. God will not make them do the right thing. God won't make you do the right thing. He won't make me do the right thing. We live in a world today where people seem to have lost all understanding of choice. And many have fallen into that victimhood mentality where, well, I have no control over my life. I'm just blown like the wind wherever life takes me. No, you have a choice. God has created you with the ability to choose. You can choose life. You can choose death. You can choose right. You can choose wrong. It's up to you. You can't blame anybody else. Let me tell you something. We all experience things in our lives at the hands of other people that can be hurtful because, again, as I mentioned earlier, Love covers over the multitude of sins. What are those sins? It's all the things we all do every day that maybe we don't mean to do, we don't intend to do, but unfortunately it just happens. And the modern secular psychotherapy world will do everything they can to help convince you that nothing is ever your fault. And therefore you don't have any control over what happens. You're just a victim. But in Christ you are a victor. You have victory in Jesus. And when you stand before God one day, no one will be able to say, well, it was my mother's fault, my father's fault, my sister's fault, my brother's fault, my husband's fault, my wife's fault. You will be accountable for only one person. You know who that is? You. You better figure that out now before it's too late. The only thing that's going to get you through those pearly gates is that you profess faith in Jesus Christ here on this earth. You repented, you turned from a life of sin, and you began to follow God. And when you stand there, Jesus is going to be there as your defense attorney saying, Father, that one's mine. Let him in.
John 13, 35, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have a big, beautiful building. All will know that you're my disciples by the thick plush carpet on the floor. No, what does it say? If you have love for one another. This is our light. This is our lampstand. It's the love. The love of God shining forth from our lives, from our church. Now he brings in another little commendation. Because even though he started with commendations, when, when they hear this nevertheless, wow, it's kind of like a punch in the gut, you know. Oh, man, I thought we were doing really good. So he brings in another little encouragement. Again, Jesus gives us a good example of how to deal with people and situations. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me read it from the NIV. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus tempers his rebuke here with some encouragement. Folks, this may come as a shock to some of you. There are some things that we should and even must hate. There's a term called righteous indignation. Remember when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple? Moses. Now Moses, yeah, I think he was a little more in the flesh when he broke the tablets, you know. And he wasn't supposed to strike the rock, but he struck the rock, so I guess that'd be a better example of some fleshly indignation. But, and notice something important here. Jesus says, you hate the deeds or the practices of the Nicolaitans. You don't hit the, hate the Nicolaitans. You hate their deeds, their practices. And that's why even though the world has a hard time understanding this, as Christians we often say we are to love the sinner but hate the sin, right? But people don't understand that. When we began to talk about the sin and, and how that it's an abomination to God, then immediately people say we're being haters. Right? But there are things that God hates. In fact, there's a whole list of them in the Old Testament. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him in the book of Proverbs. God is love, God is perfect, and God hates anything evil. And we're supposed to hate those things as well. Not the people, but the deeds. And when we get confused and we can't separate the two, that's when the church begins to compromise, you see? People can't understand how you separate the sin from the sinner. I can be as nice and cordial and friendly and loving to a gay person as anybody you want to meet, but I will never love what they do. You see how that works? The world can't understand that, but that's how it works. It was the practices that they hated, and Jesus commended them for it. So according to early church fathers, these Nicolaitans, they were followers of Nicholas. Interestingly enough, Acts 6-5, they chose Stephen. Remember, they had to choose some guys to 
deal with these Grecian and Hebraic widows. They were fighting over the, the, the lunch that was being served every day to these widows. And Peter and the other apostles said, hey, we shouldn't have to spend our time dealing with this. We're going to appoint seven men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, of good report, and we're going to let these guys deal with it. They will, they will be like deacons. So they chose Stephen, remember, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch in Syria. So he was one of the seven original deacons in the Jerusalem church, this Nicholas. And then it's believed that he developed a sect that promoted freedom in matters of Christian conduct, including free love. We've talked about some of these groups. Moses, David, Berg, and the children of God came up during the Jesus movement, evangelized through sexual immorality. David Koresh, Branch Davidian, these different groups characterized by this so-called freedom, free love, so forth. They were antinomians, one of those early branches of Gnosticism, which means against the law, taking their freedom in Christ over the limit. They reacted against legalistic Judaism, and legalism was the first danger the church combated at the Council of Jerusalem by Paul in his letter to the Galatians, and so they went off to the way to the other side. Interestingly, his name, Nicholas, means conquering of the people. And so, therefore, some Bible teachers believe that the Nicolaitans also promoted a clerical hierarchy, which means to lord it over the laity. And we all know of certain groups in particular that practice that. Matthew 20, 25, and 26, Jesus called them, the disciples, to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And so this hierarchy, this clerical hierarchy that has uh, emerged in certain branches of Christianity is really not what God intended. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I'm thinking of a particular group. I'm not going to name names today, but I think you can see where the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans might have ended up. And let's suffice it to say, even as the title of the message is returned, to your first love. Let that be a challenge to each one of us. I do believe that we have a loving church here. But we cannot, must not rest on our laurels, right? Because if a church as dynamic and powerful as the Ephesian church could wind up in that place, it can happen to anybody. It's something we must guard and protect. We must always remember Above all, love one another fervently. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Father, that you love us too much to just let us go on our merry way and never be challenged, never be disciplined, never be chastened. We know that as a loving Heavenly Father, those whom you love, you also chasten. And Lord, we don't always enjoy it. Probably most of the time we don't. But we recognize that we do need chastening 
from time to time at the very least. And so, Lord, we thank you not just for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, but we thank you also for your chastening. And we pray, God, that you would keep us on the right track. Lord, help us to be a bunch of Marys here today. Lord, we don't need any more Marthas, but we want to be Marys. We want to be able to sit at your feet, learn from you, receive from you, be ministered to by you, to honor you, to worship you. Lord, not just to meet about you, but to meet with you on a daily basis. Lord, help us to meet with you. And we ask that you would just keep us in the love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.